Uh, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We're just going to look at the first two verses this morning. The first two verses, this is one of those chapters that is, uh, we could have just gone right through it and, and gotten into the two witnesses and but I really just, uh, we haven't been here in a while really discussing this whole idea of the, of the temple in a while, and I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to, to take a pause on these first two verses and really talk about this tribulation temple that is going to be built in the last days. It's not there now, uh, but it's going to be. And, and so let's take some time talking about that and also the other temples in Israel's history. I think you'll find this quite fascinating. Um, Revelation chapter 11. Remember, this is a time in the timeline of God where we, we, ever since we've been in chapter 6 through chapter 19, it's what is called the Great Tribulation Period. It's a period of time after the church has been removed in the rapture, which could happen at any time, by the way, uh, today, hopefully, especially when my daughter's got stitches. I'm sure she'd like to be raptured. Uh, but uh, after the church is removed, the Bible speaks of a time coming that's called Daniel's 70th week. It's called Jacob's, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's also called the Great Tribulation Period. It's a time that, that it's a period where God is going to pour out his wrath on a world, again, that has rejected his son, Jesus Christ. And, and this is not a good time. This is, this is a horrible time in human history, but it is a time that is very well documented in the scriptures. And I think it's there by design. Of course it is. But it's to uh, help us to um, be aware of the time that we live in and to know that our time is short and we need to be vocal about our faith because time is rolling on. And when the church is removed, it's going to be very difficult for someone to come to Christ because the delusions, the deceptions are going to be so great, it's going to be very difficult for someone to come to Christ afterwards. Very, extremely difficult. I don't like playing, the, I, you know, you've, everyone's heard of the game Russian Roulette that they, that they played in World War II. We don't want to play Russian Roulette with this. That's why it's important that today you give your heart to Jesus. Because this is very serious stuff. It's very serious stuff. You know, the Lord is loving, he's gracious, and he's compassionate. His love is overwhelming. But we're, see, we're in a part of the scripture here where we're seeing it is the other side of God's love. Because if God is a great God of love and compassion, and um, because of his great love, he also has to punish sin. Sin has to be dealt with. And if God didn't love us, he wouldn't warn us. He wouldn't chasten us when we go wrong, when we do things wrong. If your parents didn't love you, they wouldn't chasten you when you did bad things when you were young. They, they, they did those things because they loved. And even through the tribulation period, God's love is still present, but he's put, he's going to be, it's going to be on the other side of the coin. And many people will come to Christ in the tribulation, but it's going to be very very difficult. And so the time that we're looking at right now is, um, this is a graphic that I've been using for uh, ever since we began uh, the tribulation. Uh, we've already talked about the seven seals. The, these are seven different judgments. And now we're looking at the seven trumpet judgments. We've already looked at the first four. And then we're, um, we've talked about uh, the fifth trumpet and uh, the, the sixth trumpet. And next week or the, in a couple weeks, we'll be talking about the seventh trumpet. 
These fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are also called the three woes. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at the first one. And you can look at this yourself. It's right there in, in ink on your Bible. It tells you when the first woe begins and when it, be, when it ends. And it begins in uh, chapter 9 and goes down through verse 11. And then we know that the second woe is actually going to, uh, it begins in chapter 13, I'm sorry, uh, verse 13 of chapter 9. And this is a time of demonic activity upon the earth. All of chapter 9 is really a spooky chapter. It speaks about demonic, um, uh, demonic activity in a very high form on the earth during the Great Tribulation period. And that, that second woe, or that sixth trumpet, ends at the 14th verse of the chapter we're looking at today. And then the third woe, begins, we believe, with the seventh trumpet, which begins at the 15th verse of chapter 11, and it really goes till the end of the Bible until Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, uh, we believe. And so there's, um, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But, but Jesus said about this time that if he didn't come back, it would be a time so terrible upon the earth that if he didn't come back, no flesh would survive it. So it's important that we take these things into our hearts, not only for our own information, but to warn others. Because the gospel is the gospel. It's good news because there's bad news, very bad news. The bad news is that I'm a sinner. The bad news is that if left to my own devices and left unrepentant, I'm going to go straight to hell when I die. And nobody likes to talk about that. No one likes to talk about that, but nonetheless, it is the teeth of the gospel. That is what brought me to Christ. That's what brought all of you to Christ. Hopefully, all of you are in Christ. It's what brings people. I don't want to go that, to that place. I want to be in heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but it has to be on God's terms, you see. It can't be something that I do. It can't be of my good works, because the Bible says that even on my best day, all my good works are like filthy rags in the sight of God. That means even my motives are impure. But in Christ, you can have redemption. If you confess your sin and give your heart to him, you can live with him for eternity, and that is amazing. But this morning, we're going to be looking at, we are still in this period of time called the second woe. And the second woe is really, uh, it began with these demonic hordes, uh, beginning in verse uh, 13 of chapter 9. And as we continue to go through chapter 11, we're going to see the two witnesses that God's going to establish on the earth, which we'll talk about next week. But they are going to unleash plagues upon the earth, uh, much like Elijah and Moses did, and we'll look at, at that next week. But we're just going to look at the first two verses, because it talks about this temple uh, that is going to be coming. And this is significant because it's going to be a new temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, in, on this earth... Here in the future, and it's the result of a covenant that the Antichrist, the man of sin, the, the lawless one, that he makes with Israel to build their temple. And if you recall, John the Apostle had this to say about Antichrist. It, we have to differentiate this as we go forward. I think now is a good time to do it. There are Antichrists, there is an Antichrist, and then there's the spirit of Antichrist. Notice in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, it says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, notice singular, the Antichrist, he's coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. 
Even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Notice, they went out from us. It wasn't people from outside the church, it was inside that started a lot of this, by which we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have, not, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so we have this Antichrist, this man who's coming on the scene in the, in the future after the church is removed. And there are many Antichrists in the world. There always has been. Even when John wrote this letter in the first century, there were many Antichrists. Many people who not only were uh, vehemently opposed to Jesus Christ, but also proclaimed themselves to be in place of him. So it's not just opposition to him, but it's in place of him. And anything that's in the place of Christ is the spirit of Antichrist. In fact, in uh, the next uh, slide here says, Beloved, John says again, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. That's something we need to do today. Whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. And so this man, this man of sin, is going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. And as you remember, in the scripture right now in Revelation, we're at the midpoint of the tribulation at the beginning of the tribulation, from your perspective looking up at me, in the beginning of the tribulation is when this peace treaty, there's a peace treaty that the Antichrist is going to make with the nation of Israel, and he's going to allow them to build their temple. And this first three and a half years, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to be a time when they're going to be building that temple. And um, the, 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 the two witnesses are going to be ministering during that time. The 144,000 evangelists are going to be ministering during that time. But there's coming a point right in the middle where he's going to break that treaty with Israel. He's going to set himself, an image of himself, in the temple. He's going to cause all of the, uh, the services to stop. And he's going to force everyone to worship his image. And this is where the Antichrist shows his true colors. Now, here's the thing, and this is where we're at in the scripture today. And so and no, it makes sense, doesn't it, that if there is going to be a temple coming in Jerusalem, there has to be Jews. <laughs> Since 70 AD, the Jews have been out of their homeland. From 70 AD up to May 14, 1948, the land has been desolate. There's been no Jewish temple. The Jews were scattered about the known world at the time. We call it the diaspora or the dispersion of the Jews. And then in 1948, May 14th, they come back. It's now their homeland. And this Antichrist who is coming, he is going to give them this opportunity to build this temple. Let's read the first two verses. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. So this is the angel speaking to John, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Now this is, uh, this is uh, um, the Lord is, is giving to John this vision of what's coming in the future. So he rises, he says, But leave out the church, or I'm sorry, leave out the church, leave out the court, which is outside the temple, 
Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. 42 months. And so this is where we are at. And let's look at this first verse again. He was given a reed and not sure that the the measure that is being accomplished is what we might think because when we think of a measure, we think of uh, measuring space and and, and things of that nature. We see that in Ezekiel's temple, uh, which speaks of the millennial temple. We see measurements going forth, but this is really a sizing up or an estimation that God is really giving on the altar and the people that are worshiping in this third temple in Jerusalem, yet future to us. And so, um, and this is important because the book of Revelation, remember, was written in 95 AD. And when John was writing this, the temple had already been gone and destroyed for 25 years. 70 AD. It was destroyed. And then in 95 AD, John begins to write the book of Revelation, speaking of another temple yet coming. It hasn't come yet, but it is It is coming. It is coming. And we live in an interesting time because between 70 up to the present, there's been no Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In fact, there is a prerequisite for this third temple. The first prerequisite is the Jewish people have to be back in the land. It's never occurred until again, like I said, May 14th, 1948. The Jewish people have to be in their land. If there's no Jews, they're not going to build a temple. And the second thing that the second prerequisite is that there would have to be a significant change in religion or politics. There, there's going to have to be something significant, a covenant or a treaty to allow the Jewish temple to be built alongside the El Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock and on the Temple Mount. Are you serious? They're going to cohabitate side by side? It seems like it could be. Unless, unbeknownst to us, that Dome of the Rock and the El Aqsa Mosque are destroyed somehow. But if that doesn't happen, this Jewish temple is going to lie right next to it. And the Antichrist, through craft and through other political means and deception, he's going to allow them to build this temple. And so the first of these two things have already occurred. The Jews are back in the land. The second item uh, of the treaty hasn't occurred yet. In fact, uh, go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. Or you can just write it down and I'm going to read it to you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians concerning the end times. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Notice, and the man of sin is revealed. This man of sin is the Antichrist. Christ. He is the, he's not only the man of sin, but he's also called the son of perdition. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul is pointing to another temple in which this Antichrist is going to set up his throne on this earth. Briefly, thank God. In verse 6 it says, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, meaning the Holy Spirit of God in the church, he who restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, this Antichrist, then he will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. You remember that the church has to be removed first. He has to be, we have to be removed first or else we will call this one out very easily. But most of the world who doesn't read their Bibles are going to be completely clueless. He's not going to come on the scene with a, with a pointed tail and a pitchfork and a red suit with pointy ears. He's going to be a very elegant man. He's going to be a very, probably a good looking man. He's going to be certainly well spoken. He's going to be awesome. He's going to be the politician of politicians And there's going to be no dirty laundry on this guy. He's going to look squeaky clean and everyone's going to be in awe of him. Right? They're going to be in awe. But there is a temple coming. But the church does have to be removed. And once the church is removed, then God's plan of Daniel's 70th week can unfold. It'll unfold. Now, there are three different temples that have already occurred on the earth. We can see this chart And the first one was Solomon's, built around 1012 B.C. The next one was Zerubbabel's. And then the the last one that has been on the earth so far is Herod's temple. That is currently the one uh, that when Jesus was alive, that was the temple that was in place. And throughout Israel's history, we'll see that there's going to be five different temples. You could argue that there really are only four, because some consider Zerubbabel's temple really just a... Uh, a rebuild of Solomon's temple. And what I'd like to do this morning is take a look at these, and then we'll park a little bit more when we get to the tribulation temple, which is really called the third temple. Okay, so, but first, let's talk about the tabernacle. When you think of a temple, it's a stationary place. But the tabernacle, if you recall, was one of these structures that was mobile. It was taken up by the priests, the Levites. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they had a place of worship. And the tabernacle was where they did the sacrifices. And the tabernacle was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the altar was. It's where they worshipped. But it was a very movable form of worship. It was a very movable thing. And so it really wasn't called a temple per se. And in fact, Exodus chapters 25 through 40 give a detailed outline of all those vestments, how the thing was to be built. Very specific, God told Moses to plan the tabernacle, and it was supposed to be according to the pattern of those things in glory. And you remember when we were in Revelation 4 and 5, we looked at the throne room of God, and we saw the similarities of the throne room of God versus the temple, or versus the articles in the tabernacle and the temple. And so the Jews, they built this temple, and it was a mobile thing. And it's very interesting, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, once the, temple, once the tabernacle, I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to mess that up a lot today, so bear with me, the tabernacle, it's interesting, and I bring this up for a reason. In Exodus 40, after the tabernacle was completed, it says, The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Moses was not even able to enter the temple or the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And so this Shekinah glory, we call it, consumed the temple. It was the very presence of God. 
the very presence of God. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because as we go along, we're going to see something happening with God's presence in the temple. Because we will see as, they, as time went on, as they began to flounder in their morals and in their devotion to the Lord, that um, at one point before the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians, the Shekinah glory leaves. It leaves the temple. No longer is it really about Jesus anymore. It became a money-making machine. It became more about the external ritual rather than inward. And that can happen to anybody. It certainly happened to the Jews. Their religion became very dead because they were no longer seeking God in, in, in the, on the inward man. They were going through all the outward rituals. And that's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy just to, to have the externals in place. Anybody can do that. It's very easy. Well, it can be hard, but the externals aren't really what's important to God, right? God looks on the inward man. He looks at the person on the inside. He doesn't care about how you look on the outside. That's why, uh, you know, one of the movements of Calvary, the movement of Calvary Chapel was so interesting. It started with a bunch of hippies off the beach in Newport Beach in California in the 60s. The hippies came in with, with sand on their feet and they looked unkempt, raggedy clothes, messed up hair. They smelled of pot. <laughs> and they came in, they heard the news of the gospel and were radically saved. So God doesn't care about your externals. He sees what's on the inside. That's what's more important. And that's a good thing to remember on all these facades that we see, even the temple. God's more concerned with the inner man than what's on the outward. And so the first temple that we see is Solomon's temple. This was built in 950 B.C., and this is called the first temple. You'll notice on the left side of the screen here, you can see Solomon's temple in all of its glory, but yet when you look at Herod's temple, it dwarfs it by, by, you know, significantly. As we get to Herod's temple, we'll see that Solomon's temple becomes somewhat small compared to Solomon, Solomon's temple. But we read about this temple of Solomon in 1 Kings chapters 5 through 8. Remember David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, but God says, David, you can't build a temple for me. You can't build a place for me because your hand is full of blood. You're a warrior, David. You're a warrior. You can't build the temple, but your son will build the temple. Your son Solomon, he will build the temple for me. So what did David do? Like a good father, he just got all the materials ready, got everything ready for his son. If I can't build the temple, then I'm going to get all the stuff. I'm going to get all the wood. I'm going to go down to Home Depot and I'm going to buy all the plywood and I'm going to get all the four by four uh, posts and I'm going to get the gold and the silver. <clears throat> I'm going to get all the materials, the precious stones, all of these things, and I'm going to get them ready. So when the time comes, Lord, when my son is ready, he's going to have everything he needs and then some to build this temple. And that's exactly what David does. He prepares his son. And this first temple, this Solomon's temple there on the left-hand side, this is the first temple. It was a permanent structure, no longer mobile and transient like the, the tabernacle was. And this is the temple that Jesus knew and grew up in when he was incarnate in the flesh. This is the place where Jesus went. This is where they all went during the time in the first century. And you recall that this temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., destroyed, caught on fire. The whole thing was completely destroyed. And then going forward in time, remember, after this destruction of the temple, the Jews get taken to captivity. 
They get taken off to Babylon. They're there for 70 years, as Jeremiah predicted in Jeremiah 25. God told them, 70 years are determined. They will stay there. But at the end of that seven years, there's a lot to this, but it's so wonderful how God brought them back into their land. He even allowed Cyrus and Artaxerxes and Darius, these, these pagan kings that had succeeded the, the kingdom of Babylon, they were even on board with getting the materials and everything so that the Jews could rebuild their temple. Miracle of miracles. Miracle of miracles. And so Zerubbabel's temple in Ezra chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 3 through 15, it speaks of the Zerubbabel's temple. And basically what it was is after they came back from the captivity, they saw uh, Solomon's temple just laid waste, burned. Everything was looted. Everything was taken away. And so now they're going to rebuild it. But it's going to be much less than it once was. It's going to be much, much less. It was began in 536 B.C., and, it, and the end of the construction of it ended on 515 B.C. It took them 21 years to build it, but it wasn't as glorious as Solomon's first temple. In fact, in Ezra, let me read a couple of verses for you. This, this temple was so insignificant comparative to Solomon's temple. Let me read to you what it says in Ezra 3. It says, Now in the second month... Of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. This is the Jews coming back from Babylon. He says, um, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, they began work on this temple. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And then Joshua, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Henadad and their sons and their brethren, the Levites, and then in verse 10, it says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, notice this, when they laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And it was a joyous time, really, you know, think of it. They lost their temple, they've been in captivity, now they're coming back. They're excited. They're excited, especially the ones that had been born in Babylon. Remember, that's a long time, 70 years. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, these are the old men who had seen the first temple. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. And, and, and so the old men, who remembered what the former uh, temple was, they saw in it's all of its beauty. It was the, one of the seven wonders of the world. And the old men are weeping because they remember. And the young men, perhaps those born in Babylon, had never seen it, never seen the temple at all. It's like a new thing for them, and so they're rejoicing. And praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, let me read it to you concerning this. Uh, it's really not a second temple. I really call it 1B. 
It says, In the seventh month, on the twenty-first of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak. Remember, these are the two men who came back with a multitude of people from Babylon, from their captivity. God says, Go tell them this. He says, Who was left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, God says. In other words, do you remember Solomon's temple? He said, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains, remains among you. Do not fear, do not fear. So even though it's small in your eyes, rejoice and be strong and get at it. Again, God not concerned with the externals. They were, the old men were, it's hard to not compare, right? When you've seen the Cadillac and it looks all spot shine and everything, and then you get the Yugo that's 20 or 30 years old and it's got rust and the floorboards are rusting out, <laughs> you, just, you look at that and you're like, oh, the glory days, right? That's the way it was for the old men. Now, fast forward a couple hundred years. After Babylon fell and then the Medes and the Persians and the, the Greeks and Alexander the Great, you know, after Alexander the Great dies, four of his generals, it tells us in Daniel, begin to break up the kingdom and they start having their own different places where they'll have dominion over those things. And one of those men was Antiochus. And he had a descendant, uh, probably a son or a grandson or a great-grandson, whose name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And this man, in 169 between 169 and 167 B.C., so this is after the temple had been built, rebuilt by Zerubbabel. A couple hundred years later, this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes against Jerusalem. And what does he do? He brings in and he slaughters a pig, which is an unclean animal. To this day, an Orthodox Jew would not touch pork. They don't eat bacon. None of that stuff. So what does Antiochus do? He takes a pig and he slaughters it on the temple in the Holy of Holies. And if that wasn't bad enough to desecrate the temple, he puts up an altar, an image of Zeus, a statue, I'm sorry, not of Zeus, but of Jupiter, right there on the Temple Mount to desecrate it. And Antiochus is a form of an Antichrist. He's like an Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist. He certainly had all the, some of the vestiges of the Antichrist, but he was not the Antichrist that is to come. Very similar in some ways, but not quite the same. And finally, we get to Herod's temple. After that came to pass several hundred years later, you'll notice that Herod's temple is here on the right-hand side. And in order to please the Jews, remember, Herod was not really a Jew. And so in order to appease the Jews, when he comes into a power, around 20 B.C., he begins work on the Temple Mount. He takes this temple, Zerubbabel's temple, which was kind of decrepit and lowly in the sight of the Jews. And if you're a, a politician coming into town, what greater way to curry favor than to say, you know what, you know that old building up on the hill over there? 
that Antiochus des- des- desecrated. Let's make that. Let's jack that up. Let's put that on steroids. Let's get, and, and I'm going to fund the whole thing. <laughs> and so Herod the Great, a great architect but a madman, sets out for 45 years, 46 years, to rebuild Zerubbabel's temple. And the Jews are blown away. They've never seen something so glorious. Even Solomon's temple compared to this temple on the right is nothing. You know, Solomon's temple is nothing compared to this temple. It's huge. The whole Temple Mount complex has expanded greatly. Fortifications, I mean, the footers and everything. If you go to Israel with us, you get to see all this stuff. And you guys remember when we were in Jerusalem just a few months ago? We stood on all these things. It's amazing to be up there. I remember in 2005, we had the opportunity to actually go up on the Temple Mount itself, right there next to the Dome of the Rock. And I looked out the eastern gate toward Mount of Olives. Never been there since. I mean, I never, never got to be up there on the Temple Mount. It's very difficult to get up there. It's, it's like winning the lottery or something. It's, you, just, you can't, a Gentile, it's just hard to get up there. But there we were with Amir, our tour guide, in 2005. He got us up on the Temple Mount somehow. And I was standing on the Temple Mount, and I was thinking about all these things that I've been reading for years. All the history, all the wars, all the destruction, all the bloodshed, the kings, the places where we're walking, Solomon, David. I mean, all the people in the Bible, they were all walking, we're walking over the places where they've walked, we, or, or right there where it all happened. And I actually got, I got nervous. I sat up there on the Temple Mount, and I looked out the Eastern Gate, and I just started to quake considering it all, taking it all in, knowing that I probably would never be up there again. Totally blown away, not only of what has happened on this very spot, but what's coming. It's overwhelming, folks. And if you come to Israel, I pray that you will consider it next year. If, if we have a tour, I'll have to find out more about that. But save your money. It'll probably be in the end of February or the beginning of March. But if we do have one, consider coming. It's, it, it's the greatest time of your life. Wonderful time. But so here we have uh, Herod's temple. And this is called the second temple. Some people might call it the third if you uh, consider Zerubbabel's temple a, um, you know, significant. But Herod spent a lot of money and he totally um, expanded this whole thing and really made the Jews very happy, made him very happy. And so it was going on for about, uh, I believe it was like 46 years. In fact, in uh, John chapter uh, 2, beginning in verse 18, remember Jesus, the, the, the Jews were speaking to Jesus. And the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us since you do these things, do these miracles? Show us who you are. And what did Jesus say to him in verse 19? He said, destroy this temple. And here he is standing at Herod's temple, the temple that we saw. He's standing there and he says, destroy. He, I don't know if he pointed his finger. Maybe he didn't. I'm sure he didn't. He probably just stood with his hands behind his back and let them think about it. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Oh yeah? Really? You're going to do that in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
And so now, Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he rises again, around 32 AD, somewhere in that area. Forty days he's seen of many people. Then he rises into heaven. He ascends into heaven, where he is right now. Ready to come back for you and I, the church. But then, 35 more years commences. And in 70 AD, we know that Titus, Vespasian, and the Roman legions came against Jerusalem. And they leveled Jerusalem. They destroyed this temple, this Herod's temple. Scraped it to the ground. Scraped it. Killed everybody. The the streets outside of Jerusalem were lined with crucifixes of hundreds of thousands of Jews that they had crucified. And they'd stick them on the road all along the way for people to see. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. That was, the, that was the message. So the, the whole temple was destroyed. It was caught on fire. In fact, they pushed the, the, some of the temple, uh, the, 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 the foundation, they pushed it off the, uh, what is it, the southwest corner of the temple mount. And I've actually got a picture. I, I should have put it in here, but I ran out of time. Got a picture of me standing on those rocks that the Romans pushed off the southwest edge of the temple mount, and they're there to this day. Those rocks are there. I was standing on them. And you could see the, how Herod had chiseled. You know, these were Roman, these were Herodian blocks that the Romans destroyed in 70 AD. But at this point now, fast forward to our current day, there's no temple in Jerusalem. There is coming a temple. This tribulation temple, we call it, it hasn't been built yet. All we see in the Temple Mount right now is the Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque there on the left-hand side, and no temple. But the Bible tells us there is coming a temple. It's more often called the Third Temple. We see it here mentioned in in, in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. That's why we have delved into this right now, because it speaks of this temple that when John wrote this, it wasn't there. John's clearly prophesying of a temple yet to come, because remember, this is written in 95 AD. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So John is prophesying of something yet coming. And it actually is wonderful because in... um, And and by the way, there's not a great deal of detail about this third temple, and no doubt because the one who is going to inhabit this temple is going to be the Antichrist. Jesus is not going to set foot in this temple. There's no mention about it, really, other than the fact that it's going to happen, but there's no outline of it at all. In Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 27, when Daniel is given the prophecy of the 70th week of Daniel, we won't go into that for time's sake, but notice, it says, Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. It's one week of years, seven years. Notice, but in the middle of the week, at the three and a half year period, this midpoint, which we are at right now, he shall bring an end to a sacrifice and offering. They're going to be allowed to sacrifice animals again. The Jews, they live in unbelief. They don't believe Jesus has come. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They are going to accept the Antichrist as their Messiah. You and I already know him. We're waiting for him to come back for us. But notice, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering and 
And, and so what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to cause that to stop. He's going to set an image of himself. And in fact, Daniel chapter 12 speaks of the abomination of desolation that, that is called this image of the Antichrist. Let me read it to you. In Daniel 12 verse 11 it says, And from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomina- abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And so this abomination, this image of the Antichrist, will be set up in a third temple, which is yet coming. But notice what it says in Matthew 24. Jesus speaking, he was standing there looking at Herod's temple when he said this. And remember, it's about 31, 32 AD, somewhere in that area. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whosoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. So Jesus, is he's standing there in front of this temple, and he says, when the abomination of desolation, and this is also after Jesus already told them that this temple, there'd be nothing left standing. He said, not one rock will be here, you know, stone left upon another. He said, it'll all be thrown off, and it is. It, standing on those pile of rocks. Nothing is going to remain. And then finally he says, when you see the abomination of desolation of spoken by Daniel the prophet, wait a minute, Daniel the prophet was prophesying back in the 6th century. Many people thought that Antiochus in 169, 167 BC was perhaps the Antichrist, but no, because now Jesus in like 31, 30, you know, 30 B, you know, AD, now he says to them, that abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, he's going to be the one. You mean after this temple is destroyed, there's going to be another temple and there's going to be another? Oh, yeah. That's what this is all about. If you look at the chronology, it all makes sense. And he's standing right there before it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you, Paul says to the Thessalonians, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, we read this before, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. Paul's talking about the third temple, too, that hasn't been built, speaking of it. In Revelation 13, in a couple weeks when we get to it, we're going to see this... uh, uh, we're going to see the, uh, the first part of chapter 13 speaking of the Antichrist, or the beast, as we know him. But in the second half of that chapter, we're going to be talking about the false prophet. Notice what the false prophet does. It says that he deceives, this is Revelation 13, beginning in verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived, and he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the beast or the image of the beast to be killed. So now in this middle, right in the middle of this seven-year period, right in the center of it where we're at right now, there is already a temple And the Antichrist will set up an image for himself. It's interesting, when we were in Jerusalem, I think it was in uh, 2005, we had an opportunity to go to the, the Temple Institute 
in the old city in Jerusalem. And you go up to this place, and they're, they're very serious business, these folks, uh, these Jews, because they have, and, and I love the Jewish people. They're, they're wonderful folks. Uh, but the, the Temple Institute is a, an institute where they've got all the vestments, all of the furniture, all of the, everything is ready to go. They've even got the foundation stone. They're ready to build their third temple. They're ready to build the temple. And so as a Christian, I remember going in there at 2005, and all of us were there, you know, a group of us, and Bill Gallatin, you know, was kind of giddy because he's looking at us, and we're all excited because we know what the temple signifies for the Jews. And everyone was putting in money, you know, they had this thing where you could put in money to, to support the project, you know, to finance the third temple. And after we left there, Bill Gallatin, I remember he said to us on the bus, he says, he says you know, you guys did it all in, in, in the right heart, but understand that the money that you're putting in that thing is actually going to the devil. <laughs> you're sponsoring a temple that the Antichrist is going in, and everyone's like, oh, how much did you give? A hundred? How much did you give? Five dollars? How much did you give? Twenty? And it made us all want to go in there and break it open and take our money back. But it's true. There it is. They are ready to do it. In fact, a few years ago, I forget, probably 20 years ago, they tried to bring up a, I think it was in the 90s, 1990s, they tried to bring in a, uh, a, the foundation stone. There's actually, this is on video. They were trying to bring it up to the Temple Mount to set it in place, and it nearly started a war. Because the Jews and the Muslims are not simpatico. I don't know if you, did you know that? They, they weren't really, they're not really compatible. <laughs> and so they're not very, um, so anyway, Let's talk about this last temple, this millennial temple. Actually, you know what? I've got to back up here. There's one thing I need to share with you. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14, because this is kind of significant. Zechariah chapter 14, speaking of this temple of the Antichrist, this third temple, the one that we all contributed to so gleefully there in the Temple Institute in 2005. I love Zechariah because this is one of the most visual prophecies in the Bible of Jesus' second coming to the earth. Now remember, at the end of the Great Tribulation period, at the very end of it, Jesus is coming back physically to the earth. And he's got set foot on the Mount of Olives. That's exactly the place where he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. He ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, which is just across the, 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 the way uh, from the, the Temple Mount. He ascended there, and he's coming back at the same place. Read with me in uh, Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 1. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So this is speaking of the end of the great tribulation period, which we are talking about, or we're, getting, we're in the midpoint of it now. But he says, the city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Notice this. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet, notice this, will stand at the, on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. I've stood on that mountain. I've looked at it from both sides, from the Mount of Olives over to the Temple Mount, from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. It is an amazing sight. Notice what it says. 
And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And you shall flee through my mountain valley, and the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. That's you and I, folks. All the saints with you. That's you and I will come back. It shall come to pass in that day that there'll be no light. No, the, lights will, um, the lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at the evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day there'll be living waters flowing from Jerusalem. You can look at uh, um, Ezekiel chapter 47. It speaks of water flowing from the Temple Mount in the, in the millennium, which we'll get to in just a moment. But notice that he, now when he comes down on the Mount of Olives at the end of the tribulation, gets, think of this, just practically think about this. You're on the Mount of Olives, and just across the valley, the Kidron Valley, is the Temple Mount where there's this Dome of the Rock still there, probably the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and probably this third temple that the Antichrist is going to build. And just across the valley, there's such an earthquake that it causes the thing to split from east to west and north to west. Do you think anything standing within several miles is going to be standing? Do you think anything's going to be standing structurally? If it can do that to that mountain, trust me, when you look at that mountain, you think if that thing splits, like it says it's going to split, everything is going to be devastated. On, this, on the Temple Mount, certainly, everything is just going to be wiped. This third temple that the Antichrist put his trust in, see you, bye-bye, sayonara, see you in St. Louis. Remember Bugs Bunny when he did that? See So, now, fast forward now to the time at the end when Jesus comes back in his second coming. There's another temple, the last temple that's coming. It's called the Millennial Temple. And this is a diagram of it. It, you really can't tell the size, but this complex, and it's spoken of, you can read Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47, and it gives detailed account of exactly everything. If I had time, I would show you this video that I've got that some um, architects put together, and it's a 3D model, and it, it'll blow your mind how big and expansive this is. This temple here, this millennial temple that Jesus will build will dwarf any temple that has ever been built. It makes Herod's temple even look like romper room. It's huge. It's a huge complex, and Jesus will rule and reign, and so will David King David, by the way. Ezekiel tells us that David, God's going to allow him to reign in Jerusalem. He's going to be the prince among them, among us, the redeemed. Now, there's a lot we could say here, and I, I don't want to, we're running low on time. But let me just say a, a few quick things. This millennial temple, I would just encourage you to look at these scriptures. Uh, because there's more ink dedicated to the blueprint of this temple than even in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. A lot more detail given, even more so than Moses' tabernacle that God gave him the plans for. Now Jesus gives the plans. and isn't it, isn't it ironic that it's not in the New Testament book? When I read Ezekiel, I think of it, especially chapters 40 through 47, I see it as like a New Testament thing. In fact, it, it, it supersedes that, the church age, 
all the way into the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, where you and I will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. This temple, read it, it's really pretty fascinating. And you may be confused because it mentions sacrifices that will be taking place during this time in the millennial reign of Christ. Don't let that throw you. Because we know there are several verses... Hebrews 10, verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They, they were just a temporary thing by faith. But notice, and, and, and now let me see, let me give you a shorter one. In Romans 6, verse 10, the death that he died, he died once and for all. There's no more need for animal sacrifices. Everybody will know at this time what Jesus has accomplished. Trust me. He died once and for all for sins. So what are these sacrifices that they're going to allow? It'll be for memorial purposes. As they go through these animal sacrifices, they're going to look upon and remember what Jesus did on the cross. They're not going to be sacrificing animals to be right with God because they are already going to be right with God. But it's going to be in memorial. It's sort of like why we celebrate communion. We do this in memorial. We do this in remembrance of him. It's the same kind of idea. It doesn't need to happen, but they're going to do it in memorial. Does that make sense? So don't let that throw you when you get to there. But I love what it says. Remember when I was talking about the, the Shekinah glory at the end of Moses' tabernacle when it was built, the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God came over the tabernacle, so much so that they couldn't even minister because it was filled with so much of this, the, the, the cloud that was in there, so bright and so overwhelming. It tells us in Ezekiel chapter 10 and other areas in Ezekiel, I don't, we don't have time to go there, in succession, because remember Ezekiel's prophesying right before the, the Babylonians came and removed them from their temple. And Ezekiel says that the, the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, little by little started leaving the Holy of Holies. Now it's standing at the, the, the entrance to the, 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 the temple, and then it goes out to the eastern gate. And then it goes out to the Mount of Olives. Then it's gone. And why is that? Because they've, the people of God had left God behind. They were more, more, more involved in their ritual. The outward things. But notice what happens in this millennial temple. Something wonderful happens. The Shekinah glory left on that day hasn't been back. The presence of God has not been back. But notice what it says in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Let me read it to you. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while. Yeah, it's been a while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, which may be an inference to Jesus in the millennial reign. And notice, and I will fill this temple with glory. And he's speaking of this temple we're talking about. I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. It's kind of interesting that the, the Dome of the Rock is gold and the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque is silver, just whatever, whatever that's worth. Um, says the Lord of hosts. And notice, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So the Shekinah glory finally comes back. In fact, in Ezekiel 45, 43, excuse me, 43, let me read the first uh, five verses. Ezekiel speaking of this very temple. Afterward, he, the Lord, brought me to the gate, and here he's bringing him in a vision to this temple, yet future. 
the gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth alone, or excuse me, the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. Notice verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. That's the golden gate. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Once again now, the very presence of God, not only in spirit, but Jesus Christ will be there as well. Can you imagine that? That's just so ethereal to me right now. And I look forward to that day to see that temple. I look forward to seeing Jesus on the throne. And although it won't be a, it won't be in a, in a sense where uh, it's not going to be a utopia during the millennial reign. It'll be much better than we've ever seen it. But there's still going to be war. There's still going to be skirmishes. There's still going to be problems. But there's one ruler on the throne at that time. And who's going to contend with him? Is the U.S. Senate going to try to impeach him? Is the House of Representatives going to try and impeach him? They will do nothing. This is God on the throne in Jerusalem. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? There's no interpretation of things. What did he mean? No, he's going to tell you exactly what he means. And he's going to rule with a rod of iron, the Bible says. And for you and I, we will already be in our glorified bodies the same body that Jesus received when he was resurrected, you and I will have those same bodies that can withstand eternity no longer. And the rapture of the church, that's what happens. Our, this old flesh is put off and we're given a new celestial body like Jesus. Remember he said, you know, touch me for a, a, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bone like you see me have. He didn't mention the blood because the life's in the blood. And who's empowering him now? The spirit of God, God himself empowering him just like he's going to empower you. You don't need blood anymore. You're going to be flesh and bone, and you're going to have properties and things you can do that you've never been able to do. I'm wondering how far, how high, how high I can fly. I can get real close to the sun, and hopefully my wings won't melt like Icarus. Sorry to bring up that Greek stuff. It's not true. So anyway, that is the millennial temple. But there's, it's interesting. Let's finish up with just one more thing here. Now, we know that the book, end of the book of Revelation, it speaks of, and sorry to keep you a little longer, just a few more minutes. Once the millennial reign of Christ is over with, this thousand-year reign of Christ, there's going to be no more temple. Even when this current heavens and this current earth are dissolved with fervent heat, as the Bible tells us, in Revelation chapter 21, it says, because God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and he's going to create a new Jerusalem. It's going to come out of heaven, and it's going to rest upon the earth, and it's going to be huge. It's going to be about the size of the United States. <laughs> it's going to be huge in its dimensions. But in Revelation 21, 22, it says, but I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it because the glory of God illuminated. The Lamb is its light. The centerpiece of this new Jerusalem in this new heavens and this new earth is going to be Jesus himself. Is that exciting to you? It seems like a long ways away, doesn't it? And it is. 
If the rapture were to occur today, it'd be at least a thousand and seven years from today. <laughs> a thousand and seven years. But you'll be in your new body. Guess what? No more hip replacements. You won't have to go to the hospital and get x-rayed and find out, hey, you got cancer. Hey, we got to amputate an ear. We got to amputate a leg. You've got leukemia. You got five years. And the new body, you will live forever. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. You will live for eternity, folks. And we need that body to stand in front of, you know, the Bible says that no one can stand before God and live. I mean, Jesus, people saw him, but to stand before God the Father, who is spirit, right? That's what the Bible tells us. God is spirit. Can you imagine standing in front of that effulgence? That glory, that majesty, unspeakable, unapproachable light, the glory, the beauty, the wonder, I mean, all of that. Can you imagine? Completely undone. Only in a new body could you withstand the glory and the brightness of his purity. I don't know about you, but that brings a tear. But notice, verse 2, he says, But leave out the court, which is on the outside of the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. I'll say so. That last three and a half years of the tribulation period are going to be the worst. And we're coming upon it in the scripture once we get past this midpoint, as soon as we get to that seventh trumpet and the seven bowls of wrath are unleashed, that is the second half, and it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. It's going to be horrible. Thank God you and I won't be in it. If you're a child of God, you'll never see it. You'll be in the mezzanine rejoicing with the Lord. Probably completely oblivious to what's going on underneath. I prefer it that way. And I think God would have it that way. Because he wants to see us as much as we want to see him. Even more. And perhaps the reason that this is not to be measured is because it will be built right next to the Dome of the Rock, perhaps. In fact, some people have done, um, I saw this diagram I thought was really interesting. You'll notice on this diagram that there is a shaded area right to the north. Uh, Right in the center, you'll see the the temple uh, where they believe it is or where it was. And right there is where the Dome of the Rock is today. But some, there are different views on whether the temple really uh, was on the north side of the temple or on the south side of the temple. There's a lot of really cool stuff that I'd love to share with you, but we don't have time nearly to talk about even one of these things. But there's a lot of different views on where this temple is going to be situated in this third temple. And we really don't know. There's some very good um, guesses, and and part of it's because you can't do any excavation on the Temple Mount. If if, If you want to die quickly, here's what you do. Put on a Trump 2020 sticker... Put on a backpack, get out a, a, a chisel and a hammer and a pickaxe, and go up on the Temple Mount and start whacking away. Sign your will before you go. It's impossible to do any kind of excavation up there now. The only ones who are able to do it are the, the, are the uh, Muslims when they are um, inside the mosque. They're digging out stuff and they're throwing it into the, the landfill and they're researchers are looking into the landfill and they're finding all kinds of coins going back to David's time. They're finding artifacts like crazy of stuff on the Temple Mount and yet the Muslims claim to this day, oh, this doesn't, the Jewish temple was never here. What? Are you kidding me? Trying to cover up the evidence. Sound familiar? 
trying to cover it up. So to do any excavation to really get to the the real truth of this is impossible. There's been many researchers over the years, archaeologists who've done a lot of work, and that's all that people have got to go on is stuff before they were, they were able to get in under the wire when nobody was looking, and they did some measurements, and they looked at things and made photos and you know, observations. These are the kinds of things. That's all they've got. Maybe some time, and I think now they could actually, they have the technology where they could come over the thing with a satellite and take pictures and sonar graph the whole thing and see layers of this thing. But to do that would require a lot of money, a lot of permission. And believe me, there is a contingent in Jerusalem that doesn't want that to happen. The Jews would like that. This is what the Temple Mount looks like today. And I find it very interesting that right here, oops, how did I do this? Well, I can't really show you. I thought I could. Let me see. Can I do that? Point at the screen. Oh, here we go. Here we go. So right here is the eastern gate. When the temple, and this is just my, my thought, and I know you guys are running, you know, we're running late and you're going like, I want to get out of here, right? But right here is what they call the Eastern Gate. The gate that you see there today is not the gate that the Prince Jesus will come through in the millennial reign. Believe me, this whole thing type topographically is going to change dramatically because of the earthquake and the seismic activity that's going to happen when he comes back. But right here, underneath this gate, I've seen actually photographs of a young man who was walking across. This is a Muslim graveyard right through here. And right at that gate, there's a lot to talk about on that, but below that gate, underneath the ground that nobody can see, is the actual gates that, Jesus, that were in Jesus' time. And the Bible says that he's going to walk through that gate. He's going to walk through that gate. And now I want you to notice something, that when you walk through this gate, straight in front of you, my thought is, based on some other things too, is that's probably where the temple should be. Right from the eastern gate. Because when you come out of the, the temple mount and you look east, you should see that eastern gate, the golden gate. And there are others who have a lot more. I mean, th th that was my thought based on what's all the research somebody else has done. It's just interesting. Some believe it's right here on top of the, uh, the, the Dome of the Rock, but there's very good uh, indicator that it could be over here. So they could literally build this temple right here side by side. And the problem is, is when they build that temple, guess what? The court, which would be this area around here in this area, would be jutting out in the way of the Dome of the Rock. And so what does it say there in the scripture for us? It says... Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. My, I mean, my unscholarly thought is it's probably going to be sitting right there, that third temple, at some point when they build it. They're going to have to. Can you imagine them tearing down the Dome of the Rock? It's, it's possible, I suppose. Maybe the Antichrist can make some kind of deal. Hey, we'll give you some other place. It's even nicer. <laughs> I doubt that'll happen. We'll build you a big place. Make the Dome of the Rock look like Romper Room. You can worship there. I don't think they're going to go for it. So chances are they're going to be building this temple right there. And the outward courts are going to be right in the way of this, 
or it's going to be um, jutting out to there, right in the way of the Dome of the Rock. And it makes sense, scripturally. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, which is the court of the women, by the way, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, because it's in the way. It's in the way. It's right directly to the north of where the temple would be, and they're going to trample the city underfoot for 42 months, which is three and a half years. That's when the Antichrist makes his colors known. When he step, when it, up to that point, people are going to think he's just a great guy. But when he causes the offerings to stop, Jews, you can't do any more sacrificing. And then he's going to tell them that I am God. And I'm going to put an image in myself. Everybody needs to bow and worship me. At that point, even the Jews are going to go, Oy vey. What have we done? What have we done? And then the last three and a half years, the worst in human history. Jesus said, if I didn't come back, nobody would survive it. The judgments prior to that were bad enough, but these last, these last seven bold judgments that we're on the verge of talking about are going to be the worst. So again, thank you for your patience. Let this affect you. Let this bolster your faith in Jesus Christ. Let it bolster your faith in the word of God. He has never lied. He never will lie. He cannot lie. He told you in advance what's coming. He has always been a gentleman. He's always told you things. Isn't that what a good shepherd does? He tells you in advance what's coming so that when it does come, you're not freaking out like people today. If you're not a Christian today, there's good reason to freak out. Wouldn't you agree? But guess what, Christian? You don't need to freak out. God has told you very plainly what's coming. We don't know the day or the hour, but it's coming. Be encouraged and let it, let it stir you up again and, and get your heart fixated on Jesus Christ. Not on politics, not on the news. Get your heart and your mind fixed on the word of God, Jesus Christ. Let everything else just kind of go. Trust me, God's got it under control. He doesn't need you or I to worry about it. It's not going to add one cubit to our stature by worrying about it. You be prayerful. You be lights in the world. You be examples to those that are around you. You tell people the truth. Tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. <laughs> All right. Let's stand and pray. Thank you again for your patience. Father, we thank you for this time. Bless my brothers and sisters. Encourage us in the faith of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.